The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Would you look with me now in God's Word in Luke chapter 1 and in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed, to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying. She tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called, uh, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God abides forever, and by his grace and mercy may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. One of the men I've enjoyed studying in my life is obviously one you wouldn't be surprised is John Calvin. And uh, John Calvin, of course, was in exile as a reformer. He sought simply, uh, he sought simply to have a life of a scholarly pursuit. That's what he wanted to do. He felt his contributions would be in the area of scholarship and publications. In fact, he had already begun re- uh, writing what we now known as the Institutes of the Christian uh, Religion, Calvin's Institutes, that would undergo six edits. Uh, until he got to his final product. And when he was out um, seeking asylum in various places, a man by the name of William Farrell called him to take over the pastorate at a burgeoning church of the Reformed faith in Geneva. And uh, he pressed it upon him. <laughs> he told him, he said, um, Calvin, if you don't come, may God curse your scholarly pursuits. And uh, with such a ringing declaration, Calvin became very sensitive and to this and, in fact, received the call to be the pastor at St. Peter's uh, there in Geneva. And he came to be their pastor. 
and in the preaching of the word, it was just in the matter of three years that he was um, sent away from Geneva by the church fathers, the elders, as well as the city fathers. His ministry lasted three years. He went over to Strasbourg and had a wonderful three-year ministry there, along with a guy by the name of Barton, uh, Martin Bootser. And, and as he was ministering to the international church, all of the various exiles that were fleeing the persecutions of the Reformation, the Lord was blessing him. I've had the privilege to stand in that church where he pastored in Strasbourg. And then to go from there back to St. Peter's. Um, Geneva wrote him again and asked him to come. And so he received their letter. He prayed about it. He didn't want to come. He he loved where he was. He had time to write. He had time to preach. He was uh, marvelously supported. He loved the moments there, and, uh, and he wanted to stay. But after a while, he became convinced that the Lord was uh, calling him there. So he went and returned to Geneva. So he was there from 1536 to 1538. And then he was um, asked to leave, and he left and was gone from 1538 and returned in 1541. Now, why do I tell you this story? When he came back in 1541, the first Sunday he was back, he went, he went to the pulpit, and he opened the scriptures, and he began to preach. His text was the next verse from the preaching that he did the last Sunday he was there, three years later. He just took up where he left off in the exposition of God's Word. Whenever I study for this Advent season and think of the ministry of, uh, of our God to his people to bring forth our Savior, and I realize that God has been silent, silent for 400 years. Now, this isn't the first time God's been silent. It's not the first time. God was silent for 400 years. He told Abraham he would put them in affliction for 400 years, and he was silent as they were under oppression and affliction as he was maturing and mobilizing uh, and multiplying his people in Egypt. And then he spoke, and he sent Moses to lead them out. Now he has been silent for 400 years. His last words came through teachers such as Ezra, Nehemiah. The last words came through prophets such as Malachi, came through Haggai, Zechariah, and others as he would speak to his people. But now for 400 years he has been silent. But here's what I want you to remember from last week. He may have been silent in those 400 years, but he was not silent about those 400 years. He had already laid out in the book of Daniel, chapters 2, chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 11. He had already laid out through Zechariah and Haggai and Malachi. He had already told them of the things that were going to transpire in those 400 years. As not only the Assyrian Empire has been removed and the Babylonian Empire has been removed, but the Medo-Persian Empire, it will be removed. And then will come the Greek Empire that he prophesied. And then will come the Roman Empire, which was prophesied. And all of those, the layout of the grand scope of what God sovereignly was doing during those 400 years had been communicated to them in the very prophetic words of, um, of the Old Testament. 
And not only was he not silent about those 400 years in which he was silent, he wasn't silent about them, but he was not absent. He was present in them. How do you get a Zechariah and Elizabeth back from Babylonian captivity and their, and the entire line um, of the uh, priest that is put back into place? And how did that temple get there where Zechariah met the angel? And how did that line, how did that line of David get preserved that would bring forth Mary and Joseph as we have the genealogy of Mary and Luke and the genealogy of Joseph and Matthew? How is all that happening? God was sovereignly weaving together, causing all things to work together for the good of his people and for his glory. Yes, he was silent during those 400 years, but he wasn't absent. And he wasn't silent about those 400 years. But what really interests me and why I told you about Calvin is when he finally speaks and breaks his sovereign self-imposed silence. He picks right up where he left off. The last words in the canon of Scripture were in Malachi. And before the great day of the Lord, I will send you one who will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And while we have the Gospels... No news to good news. We got the four Gospels, the good news epistles. It's the third Gospel that is the Gospel of Luke to which God sovereignly assigns his first utterance after 400 years of silence. Fittingly, it's in the temple. It is Luke who puts together the birth narratives and the incarnation. And he begins with the birth narrative that's announced to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And he announces it in the temple as Zechariah is doing his responsibility, which likely he only had the opportunity to do one time in his lifetime. And while he is there praying, as he is interceding, praying what any and all of them would have been praying, come Messiah, come Messiah, come Messiah. It is there that the angel appears beside the altar and says to Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. And the proof that your prayers have been heard and the Messiah is coming is you and Elizabeth will bear a child. And not just any child. This is the child that is the fulfillment of the last words that were spoken in the canon. He will be the one who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And let me again say, with I, I understand why people would read that and say, this is a passage that tells us uh, the importance of the family. And certainly the importance of the family is there. Fathers to children and children to father. But I would suggest to you that's not the direct application of that. That Elijah would come and his ministry would be one of turning. What does he preach? repentance. And what is he calling? He's calling the fathers of the faith to turn to the children of God. As they're about to have this glorious gospel movement of the Christ who comes into the world, it is preceded by the movement of reformation as the fathers of the faith. Just as the patriarchs and the prophets are now called to repentance, it's not about you, it's about Jesus. 
And the father's hearts are turned to the children. And he tells us in the text, the children of God. Will that have a benefit to our nuclear families, our natural families? Absolutely. But what he's looking at is the family of God is being moved to this moment where where the light of the gospel is coming in the power of his son, Jesus Christ. And Zechariah is informed that I have heard Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. And the sign will be that you, you and Elizabeth are going to have a child. Though barren, a providential miracle is about to take place that the one barren is going to bear the child. And this child is the fulfillment of the last words. He just picked right up where he left off. And now this one who comes in the spirit of Elijah will initiate the call to repentance of fathers to their children, the children of God to care for them, and then the children to hear those fathers who with servant hearts are leading them to the glories of the almighty covenant-keeping God. Then comes a second word. It doesn't come immediately. It comes six months later. If you've got your text in front of you, would you take a closer look at it with me? Here comes the second time God is going to speak a word after his 400 years of silence. Again, it's being delivered by an angel. Again, it's the angel Gabriel. You know, I don't, um, I'm really interested in this matter of angelic ministries. And I don't want to overdo this, but it seems that Gabriel, when he shows up in your Bible, he gets named in places like Daniel and here in Luke chapter 1. And uh, then you also have heard of Michael. It seems to me that Michael, I think Michael is is the warrior angel, as he's usually got a big battle to fight. And Gabriel seems to be um, the teaching and counseling angel. He's always instructing. He has instructed Zechariah. He instructs Daniel. He instructs Zechariah. Now he is giving instruction to Mary. He comes. He's got a specific place. No longer are we in the environs of the temple. Now we've moved to the central part of the promised land up at Nazareth. Nazareth is almost right between the Mediterranean Sea. It's about 20 to 25 miles from the Mediterranean Sea and about 15 to 20 miles from the Sea of Galilee and uh, and the uh, eastern borders. And there he now comes to Nazareth. It was a twin city. It had another city that was right next to it, a city called Cana. And it is there that he comes to this very small city. It is estimated something like two to three hundred people probably lived there at that time. It was, as as you will find out in the Gospel of John, can anything good come from Nazareth? It It was not a city of renown by any means, not a city of fame. But it is there that... The Almighty sends Gabriel, and it is there that Gabriel comes, not simply to Nazareth, but to a specific person in Nazareth. He comes to a virgin. Now, that's an interesting word. I want you to remember it. It means a young woman, and in that and in that context, probably teenage years. Don't know what age in the teenage years, but teenage years. And a young woman who is not yet engaged in marital intimacy. And of course, Mary, 
who is also, as we know, in, in, the, uh, in her genealogy, in the Gospel of Luke, is of the line of David, uh, is, is there, and she is betrothed. Not just, this Mary is one that is betrothed. Her name is Mary. Now, that would have been a very common name, as you can tell in your Bible. There's all kind of Marys uh, showing up in the Bible. And uh, one of the reasons why is probably the most famous woman from the Old Testament was Miriam. And Mary is the derivative of Miriam. So many of them would be named after Miriam. And so uh, she also has the name Mary. She's living in Nazareth. She is betrothed. What that means is in the three steps of marriage uh, that they have not yet got to the point of consummation. She is married to a man, specific one, That's his name is Joseph. And Joseph is of the line of David. And so here they all, both are of the line of David, and here they are betrothed. Now, people say, well, that's like the engagement. Well, it's more than engagement. I mean, you were considered married when you were betrothed. If you, in fact, if you broke the betrothal, you had to get a divorce. A writ of divorce to break the betrothal. But what the betrothal did is it set up about a one-year time in which everything but marital intimacy was embraced. It was a one-year time in which the man manifests his ability to take care of the one that he is taking to himself. And the woman manifests her fidelity to that man. Then would come a ceremony and a consummation. So they have not arrived at the ceremony. They have not arrived at the consummation. Therefore, she is still a virgin. Betrothed to Joseph, not yet ceremonially joined and not yet consummated. But here she is in this betrothal. She's still a virgin and she's of the house of David and, uh, and she is, and she is betrothed to one who is of the house of David. And Gabriel finds her, and he delivers to her the message. Good news. Look at it with me, if you would. Go back with me to the text. Here's what he said. And he came to her, in verse 28, and said, Greetings, O favored one. Perhaps your translation, I think rightly, has, O highly favored one. He is about to tell this woman, who has obviously been favored by, by the way, Favor, interesting word. Go to Ephesians 1, you'll see how it's used. It means the blessings of grace. It's another word for grace. Oh, graced one, could easily have been said. It's not, hey, Mary, would you do me a favor? Or, Mary, I'm going to do you a favor. This is a declaration of divine grace. She is highly favored. Favored, favored, literally in the text. She is favored, favored. Now, why is she favored, favored? Because she not only has the favor of grace in her salvation, she's got the favor of God in her designated vocation. She will bear the Messiah. She has been graced with salvation and graced with this vocation. And the announcement is now coming to her. And as he comes to her, he says to her that, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you, and what? He is going to be with you. Why? Well, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Why am I being greeted with a declaration of grace 
grace upon grace, and the assurance that the Lord is going to be with me. Why is that coming? And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you, for you have been blessed of God. Do not be afraid, Mary. Um, and he said, Do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. Please understand, um, it is... Ever since the Reformation, the issues of Mariology have compounded. I have two great concerns. Number one is out of the reaction to the heretical teachings around Mary, that she is the queen of heaven, uh, that she was the co-mediatrix with Jesus. Uh, all of those things that must be rejected. All of those things. There is the loss of the fact that this was a very godly woman. And commends herself much for our study as it point as uh, in her life as she points to Christ. And as she receives this news, she is troubled. And as she is troubled, the angel Gabriel begins to comfort her by teaching her. You have found favor, not you have earned favor. You found favor. You are an object of God's grace in your salvation and in this vocation to which you are being called. You have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, Mary, I I confess, I'm speculating. There is no way that Mary does not know what is being said. If she, if she doesn't, she knows it pretty quickly. This is Isaiah 7:14. Behold, a virgin. What's Mary? A virgin shall conceive in her womb. She shall conceive as a virgin. The virgin shall conceive in her womb. And the one she bears is Emmanuel. God with us. What has Mary been told? You will receive. You will conceive in your womb. And the one that you conceive is Emmanuel. And God is with you. God is with you. And he is with you in this call that you have upon yourself. And he will be with you. And in him you conceive. And as you conceive, you will bear this son, and this son is Emmanuel, God with us. He will be great. He will be called the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This one whom you bear is king of all kings, is king forever, and his kingdom shall never end. She knows this is the Messiah. This is the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit will come over you. I cannot tell you how many times I've tried to describe this uh, miraculous work of the, of the um, virgin conception. We call it the virgin birth. 
And it is a virgin giving birth, but the miracle is at the conception. The reason the virgin is giving birth is because a virgin conceived. It was a virgin conception. And that um, there have been miraculous births. She's already informed of one. There's going to be a miraculous birth. The one who was beyond childbearing age, Elizabeth, is going to bear a child. Not the first one. Remember Sarah? Hannah just goes through the scripture. Here is God intervening and bringing providential miracle. But this one is unique, one of a kind. This isn't an older woman enabled to bear birth in contradiction to the laws of creation. This is a young woman who is betrothed but has not engaged in marital intimacy. You will conceive. How? The Holy Spirit shall come upon you. I have searched throughout my life to try to communicate this. And I think I can't do any better than uh, J. Gresham Machen does in his seminal volume on the virgin uh, birth. And, um, and its download, as I was taught at Westminster and Dr. Ferguson and others, I think the best way to do this, when you're looking at redemption and the coming forth of the Messiah, whereby we're going to be redeemed, is to go back to creation. Where God spoke and there was creation, but it was darkness, disorder, until the Holy Spirit came over the creation and he formed it and he filled it and the first thing that comes out of the darkness is light and that's the picture the supernatural miraculous work of the Holy Spirit another word for that could be used The Holy Spirit brooded over like a hen broods over her chicks. He brooded over the creation, brought order, brought filling, brought all that would be in place. And so the Holy Spirit broods in and over the womb of Mary. And now... Genesis 3 makes sense. To the woman, to the serpent, he said, your seed will be at enmity with the woman's seed. And the woman will have a seed. And his seed will bruise the head of the serpent. His seed, her seed will be bruised, but her seed will bruise your head. There will be cost as the heel is bruised, but the lethal blow will be upon Satan by the seed of the woman. And we know women don't have seed. Now, understand, we're in confusion in our present culture where now we talk about persons having babies. Can I clue you all in on something here? Just in case you don't know this, persons don't simply have babies. Women, female, those who are born female, alone, 
can procreate children. But normally the seed would come from the man and that, but this is going to be a woman who is highly favored and there will be no seed from the man. Of course, that's crucial, isn't it? Because if Jesus comes from the seed of Joseph, then Jesus is born of the seed of Adam. And that meant he would have been born with what? A sin nature and a sin record. He would have been another consequence of original sin. But no, this is a new Adam who has come. And he doesn't come from the seed of Joseph. Joseph will be his legal adopted father. Mary, his appointed mother. The body will come from Mary. So he will be one of us. He will be with us. He is one of us. But he doesn't have a sin record. He doesn't have a sin nature. Why? This one who comes is of the unique one-of-a-kind moment where the virgin conceives in the womb as the Holy Spirit in the darkness of that womb is bringing the light of salvation. And then this is the one who is the son of the Most High. Is he the son of man? Yes, he's also the son of God. This is the one who is a king and not just a king. He's a king of all kings and not just a king of a temporal uh, kingdom, but the king of an everlasting kingdom. And now Mary's immediate response to this. Look, if you would, in verse 36. Um, And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power, this is a miraculous supernatural event, one of a kind, will overshadow you. He will be upon you and, and at work on you in that womb to bring forth the Holy One, the one who is holy, unique, one of a kind, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son. And here is, a, here is an evidence of a similar act, a providential miracle. Uh, and then the sixth month that she shall, who, who was barren, but for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. So you've got the announcement, you've got her question, and then you've got her response. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. The angel departed. But God did not. He will be with you. And then what does she do? She says, let it be done to me according to your word. And she surrenders to the call of the Lord and the burden of the Lord. The call and the burden. Have you ever wondered why the Bible tells you to count the cost when salvation is free? Have you ever wondered why? Here is a woman who is graced. She's graced with salvation and she's graced with God's calling upon her life. 
Yet as she receives it, she says, let it be done to me according to your word. The reason Jesus tells us to count the cost is not because salvation can be purchased by us. No, salvation for us was purchased by Jesus. Salvation is a free gift. But it costs you everything. It costs you yourself. With the blessing of grace comes the call of grace to surrender all to the one who gave all to save us from our sins. In Mary's case, her calling was to bear the Messiah into this world. Would there be a cost to it? My guess is yes. In fact, if you don't mind, I've got just a minute to do this. Let me do it, and then we'll, we'll conclude with this. Uh, and uh, go, go to the next uh, passage. <coughs> what happens after the angel departs? In those days, Mary arose and went with, went with haste. She, made a, she was a quick trip she made into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. That's the one she had been told is now having a child. And when Elizabeth and that and Elizabeth is a relative of Mary. We don't know what kind of relative. We just know she's a relative. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, do you remember what the angel had said to Zechariah? That the one in her womb would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, here is the fulfillment. John the Baptist is in her womb, and when and when Mary comes, then Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit in her womb, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, "Blessed are you, you're graced, you're favored. Blessed are you among women, and and blessed and and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Your that which you are carrying is the source of blessing." And then, then she says, and then she says, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting comes to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so here is Mary. She goes, she goes to see Elizabeth. Why? Now, here I'm in absolute speculation. I know not why. Could it be she has such respect for Elizabeth that she, she's, in, she's still working her way through this and she wants some godly counsel, so she goes to an older woman? Could it be her own father and mother sent her to the older woman and, hey, she can help you? Could it be all of the... All of the mocking and slander against her in Nazareth and maybe even the abandonment of her parents. I don't know that she had to go to someone and Elizabeth was the only one she could go to. I don't know. But I do know she was bearing a burden. And when God brings blessings, those blessings are burdens. That we are to bear that others might be blessed through us. That's what I do now. So when you come to Christ for that salvation, you've come to Christ for your vocation. And when you've come to Christ for your vocation, 
That blessing brings a burden of his call upon your life. Now, what will you say? Mary said, let it be done to me. As you have said, I am the Lord's servant. We talk about, and rightly so, we even have songs about it, don't we? Mary, did you know? I don't know all that Mary knew, but I do know this. She knew she was bearing the Messiah. She knew she was bearing the Son of God and Son of Man. She knew this was the fulfillment of Isaiah 7:14. She was the virgin. He, there was the one that was conceived in her womb. And Emmanuel, the Lord, said, I will be with you. She knows that. I know that. And she also knows it's going to cost. I don't know all the costs. The Bible doesn't give us the details. I know it will not only cost in her pregnancy and her birth, it will cost in her parenting, and it will cost when she stands at the cross and a sword pierces her heart. But I do know what she said. When the word of God came with the blessings of grace and the call of grace, her word was surrender. Let it be done to me according to your word. Let me just give you that as the takeaway. It's simply this. God's word reveals the blessings of God's grace that brings the burden of God's blessings through which we bring others to him, the one who is with us. Let me just say it this way. Mary said, let it be done. Through her is coming the Savior of sinners. And before he even arrives at the manger, we have the first incarnation, the first convert of the incarnate Christ, the one who will lead the way, John the Baptist, converted In his mother's womb. Why? Because Mary surrendered and brought Jesus to Elizabeth and John the Baptist. And Jesus brought them to glory. Christ has come to save us. Will we Bear this glorious, blessed burden of bringing him to them that they might come to him. Our salvation is free, but the calling of God upon our life is everything. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. And we bring him to others, even as Mary brought him for us, that they might come to him, even as we have come to him and said to him, let it be according to your word. We are your servants. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for the moments in your word. Would you just take these moments, Jesus, and would you speak to the hearts of your people? We certainly don't know all that Mary knew, but we do know what Mary knew. We do know that she knew that she was bearing the Messiah. We do know that she knew it would cost, and we do know that she surrendered. God, I pray that anyone here who has not yet come to Jesus would come to him freely, knowing that everything in Christ has been done to save us from our sins. But do know, to come to Christ is to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. To say no to self and yes to Jesus. And then to know the freedom and liberty that Jesus brings when we die to ourselves. Live unto him because he is our life. Let it be, O Lord, as you have said. Would you take a few moments in prayer? You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.